Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 275, recorded November 17th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 105. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express. If you're in tech support, solve problems fast. With the leader in remote support software, GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, visit gotoassist.com slash security. And by Carbonite. Backing up files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code security now. And by Ford and voice-activated sync. Featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy, your security, your online safety, and the man, the myth, the legend, Steve Gibson, is here from GRC.com. Steve is uh, the guy who discovered the first spyware, coined the term spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware program. He long since handed that off. He's probably thanking his lucky stars right now. (laughs) And uh, and I'm, I'm laughing that I'm the myth. Yeah, I'm well, not quite sure. The man, the myth, the, the legend. Man, the Every myth, time the legend. I say myth, I think. Well, hmm. myth. What is the myth? No, there's myths about you, Steve. Many people okay. think you wear steel underwear. That's not true. No, uh, that's no. Not. <laughs> Never has been. True. There's myths about Steve, but not uh, even reinforced anyway. <laughs> Steve is uh, is also uh, the guy who wrote Spinrite, the world's best hard drive utility out there. That's not a myth. That's no myth. That's definitely true. That's all at grc.com. And of course, we debuted last week your uh, your free DNS benchmark program. Yes, it's been a big hit. I have a couple little comments in errata section today to to share just little brief things. We've been seeing about 1,100 downloads a day. So wow, that's great. Really nicely, yeah. Not as big as Fire Sheep. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> and you could have written Fire Sheep, but I'm nah, glad you didn't. I'm glad for that, <laughs> too. You didn't. Uh, uh, yeah, this is a Q&A episode, so we have lots of questions, lots of answers. We also have... Uh, Security news, security updates, and so forth. Before we get too far along, can I uh, can I say hello to a sponsor? By all means. Because uh, that's who makes these shows possible. The good folks at Citrix have been very supportive all along of all our efforts at Twit. And, you know, as, as Twit expands, and we are, we are expanding uh, all the time, uh, it's the sponsors that make that possible. So we thank them very much. Citrix, the good news is we choose our sponsors. They don't choose us, and we choose products that we use and we feel confident in. So when you when you know hear an ad on uh, one of our shows, it's for something that we really believe in and really use. Go to Assist Express is a very good example. In fact, the first time I encountered Go to Assist Express was six seven years ago on the screensavers. We used it sometimes for uh, support, remote support on the show, 
Now, I have to say, it's come a long way, baby, in seven years. It is such a great program now. It basically uses that great back end, that remote access back end that Citrix is so well known for, uh, but tunes it for the needs of the support and IT pro. Things like eight sessions at once, uh, unattended uh, access, uh, the ability to say, uh, you know, what software is running, what operating system is running, what's the security software on this system. And, you know, without you don't have to ask your client, are you running Norton? You can find out. It's, believe me, a lot more reliable. Uh, you can drag and drop files from your computer to theirs. So it's great for hot fixes and patches and, and, and scanners. You just drag them over. You got all the tools on your system, drag it over. You know what I really like? And I, this is a selling point for me, maybe not for everybody. Um, your clients don't have to have it installed ahead of time. You've got it. In fact, you can get it right now for free for 30 days by going to go to assist.com slash security. Go to assist.com slash security, G-O-T-O. Um, once it's installed on your system, now you're on a phone call, a support call. All you have to do is say, look, I'm going to send you a link. Click that link. The software installs in it literally in less than a minute. It's very quick to install. It's not a big, in fact, it's not a big installation process. It's very straightforward. It's Java. So it's just very straightforward. I think, or is it Java? I think it is. So uh, all in Mac or PC too, by the way. So all you have to do is say, look, here's the thing. They do it. And now you're in. You have, and you you have total control of what's going on. It's just fast and easy, and 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 of course, even if they're at you know at an open hotspot, you don't have to worry about Fire Sheep because it's 128 bit SSL end to end encryption. Customer service for you 24 seven. Citrix is famous for that. No wonder Frost and Sullivan, the rated go to assist the worldwide market leader in remote support. There's just nothing better. Try it free for 30 days. You'll be glad you did. Go to assist.com slash security just security not security now all right steve i uh, i see some rata some stuff to cover here yeah well we don't have too much in the update category though i guess when weighed by the megabyte we actually do <laughs> Woo! Yeah, this was a big patch oh my goodness i love this it's the 007 patch it's uh it's the seventh patch of the year for apple's os 10 and in my case, 572 megabytes. So over half a gig. Yeah, mine was like that too. It was, I couldn't yeah. believe it. Yeah, well, um, 130 different security vulnerabilities, although in fairness, 55 of them were in Flash. <laughs> it, you, you know, it's weird, that. but I guess that's Apple has taken it on itself to patch Flash as well. Yes. Now, yeah. if people had patched Flash before this manually, then... This would have been redundant, but you know, among this was a a new copy of Flash Player that brings OS 10 current with where Adobe is with Flash. So it was a huge update. Um, the Apple page that talks about that enumerates all these things just scrolls on and on forever and ever. Um, it brings uh, OS 10 up to 10.6.5 or 10.5.8, depending upon whether you're back at the 0.5 or 0.6. So, um, and that was now a week ago. So I would imagine most um, Mac people have already encountered this. Uh, for me, I turn this one little mini on that I that I use yeah. for our podcasts um, only once a week. So it, I fired it up and I, I knew this was happening because I had already encountered the news about this. And it's like, oh, here it is, baby. And so luckily I turned it on a few hours ago. 
so that it was able to download this thing and update itself and get going. So uh, also there were fixes to QuickTime, Time Machine, Safari, just pretty much across the board, 100 and, 130 different vulnerabilities patched. So the 007, seventh patch of the year. Um, probably the last big one, I would think, given here we are mid-November. Um, and then the other important one was that Adobe has fixed their... Um, this was the patch to version 9, which we knew they were going to be coming out with. We've been following this for the last couple of weeks as Adobe's been trying to do this out-of-cycle patch to get um, Reader updated. So this is the version 9 of Reader, which was lagging behind their fixes for version 10 and of Flash, all of which they had already patched. So if people were back on version 9, then just yesterday from when we're recording this. So let's see, we're recording this on the 17th. So on the 16th, they released their their version 9 catch-up. So they're now current with this um, zero-day vulnerability, which had been seeing a lot of exploitation. In news, um, the UK has backpedaled a little bit from what we what we discussed. It was a, in the last couple of weeks, we talked about the, the UK passing the Digital Economy Act, which, among other things, remember that it had that three strikes, then you're disconnected from the Internet provision. Well, now they're saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, yes, that's in the law, but I guess it caused a lot of furor over there. So they're saying that they're not going to be disconnecting people, that they're, it's technically there's a provision for that, but they really don't expect to be to be actively pursuing that. So, good, good, good. Uh, yes, that is good news. Um the still unpatched zero day IE six and seven flaw. We've talked about this weekly now because um, last week we mentioned it had made itself into some of the most popular hacker kits, and we're it's seeing more widespread use. I picked up a little note that it had appeared on, that the exploit for this had appeared on Amnesty International's Hong Kong website such that people who went to the Hong Kong website of Amnesty International using IE6 or 7 would get themselves infected because there's no there's no patch for this yet. Still no word from Microsoft about when they're going to get this done. This came out just after the, um, the, the second Tuesday of November. So it, it's, you know, it caught Microsoft off guard and they're still saying they don't feel this is a big enough deal to um, uh, to do an out-of-cycle patch. So we'll see if this gets worse before um, the second Tuesday of December when let's hope they get this thing fixed. Um, a little bit of news that Sweden is considering legislation to require ISPs to retain all of the their customers' email and cell phone text messages for six months. What? And yeah, I know we keep seeing these data retention legislation threats floating around. And and I hope that I hope that the legislators understand the the burden that this creates. I mean, it's easy for them to, you know, sit in their council chambers and say, Yeah, let's have everyone let's require everyone retain everything for six months. But I mean, that's this is a that's a huge 
technological burden to impose on, like just out of the blue, on a carrier, which is what an ISP is currently, that, you know, they may be doing some filtering. We know, for example, that ISPs block various ports. Uh, for example, I know that that um, the cable modem provider here in Southern California, it blocks the traditional um, uh, dangerous Windows ports, 137, 138, 139, and 445, that were the file printer sharing ports. They also block 25, which is SMTP, to, to prevent, um, to some degree, bad things from, from being able to be used for spamming, you know, botnets and so forth for, for, for spamming. But, you know, it's very simple from a technology standpoint to block traffic on a port. That, I mean, it takes nothing. It's a whole different scale of, of, of obligation to ask an ISP to intercept, which is what they have to do, and record all of the email transactions and and in this case cell text message uh, cell phone text messages of all their customers to hold them for six months and then somehow you know age them and let them go away after six months so i'm uh, this is again let's just hope this doesn't happen this would be a bad precedent to to have not mean bad not uh, not as much from a privacy standpoint i mean that's a problem too but mostly just it's it's a phenomenal from a technology standpoint a phenomenal change to impose on ISPs so i just i hope this just doesn't happen you know didn't uh, the fbi put the, those carnivore or proposed to put those carnivore boxes in and as i rem- the, the carnivore did it did the collection and aggregation itself right it was kind of well, less of a burden on the isp they just had to pipe stuff through it well, and it wasn't doing everything. So it was a tap where they were able to say, we want to start monitoring this particular uh, customer. Right. And so it would filter out traffic to a given customer and, and, and feed it off. So, I mean, and, and so that's being done in real time. It's being stored elsewhere. It's not saying to the ISP, we want you to record everything uh, for six months oh, so that we can later come back to you and say, oh, we'd like all the email of this particular person. So, yeah, it's a it's a whole different scope of of obligation. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think I think that there there the, the legislators get very cavalier sure. about this idea. It's like, well, Google is, you know, indexing the whole internet, so why can't you, you know, store all the email from all your customers? And it's just like, wow, there's no infrastructure in place for that. That's a a huge, huge deal. So let's hope it doesn't happen. Um, so. One million Chinese cell phones have been infected by something that they're <sighs> calling the zombie virus. <laughs> Great. Uh, it masquerades as an antivirus application, which users have installed. It then propagates by text messaging links to itself to everyone in the infected phone's phone book. So this thing spreads like wildfire. It is currently costing Chinese users because it sends texts to premium right, um, text right. messaging. It's costing Chinese users an estimated 300,000 U.S. dollars equivalent in yuan, um, 300,000 
U.S. dollars per day Crikey. is the is the is the is the cost, and so it's just sort of a little cautionary note. Um, I've seen some some commentators talking about this, saying, you know, um, here's here's you know, it's like yes, that's happening over in China, so it's not affecting our listeners in the U.K. and Australia and in the U.S. and so forth, but. Um, this is bound to happen. This is going, you know, it's just, you know, it's not a matter of if, but when. And so our listeners who are security conscious, I would just say when you, when you're looking at your new phone and you're thinking, wow, isn't this cool? This is a computer. Um, and you're looking at the application stores, which are available. Ask yourself, do I really need this and how long has it been around? We all, we know that new things tend to cause more trouble than old proven things. So, sure, it's it's fun to download all these toys onto your phone, but with every one of them, you know, they're taking up space. They're they're in that phone's ecosystem, and if they're brand new, there just isn't any way for everyone, you know, for the people who are hopefully vetting these to some degree to actually know what this can do. So, you know, just use caution. Just, you know, use your best judgment, I would say. But it's just a matter of time before we get something like this. It's going to happen. Yeah. It, it's, you know, I mean, all, we, we're seeing bits of this happening. You know, applications are being, are being taken away that are found to be behaving badly. They haven't done anything like this yet. But they certainly can. So it's, you know, as you say, Leo, it's a matter of time. I would, I would hope that our listeners won't get bitten badly by this. So, and this particular thing also sends all the SIM card data from the phone, t- texts it back to some <laughs> server somewhere of the people who created it. Basically, allow, allowing them to take over your phone. Did so, this get installed? I mean, that's a lot of phones that got on it. Did, did it get installed by people downloading a rogue app? Yes, it started as a it, it it's masquerading as an antivirus. Oh, so, that's why it got so many people. Yep, they installed it thinking, "Oh, this will be really good." Right. And then it propagates by sending links to itself to people that they know. Oh, here's a, here's an antivirus you ought to have for your phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, coming one million people is a lot of people. I mean, that's, from someone you know, yeah, it's a huge success. Infestation. Yeah. Meanwhile, Symantec has been very patiently continuing to reverse engineer the Stuxnet worm. And finally, we're beginning to see some really interesting data. You know, I've, I've resisted drawing any sweeping conclusions because there were lots of things being said early on before there was, any ever, before there was really ever any justification for it from a standpoint of, of what the Stuxnet worm does. Well, now we have enough specific information that you you really can begin to say with a reasonable degree of certainty that this was targeted at Iranian um, um, nuclear enrichment. Um, it it really looks that way. But, but it has, did it did have to affect the Siemens equipment, right? Yes. Well, even more specifically, it turns out that 
and, and it just takes time. It takes time to reverse engineer the code. They don't have the source. They're, they're looking at the object code, which has been disassembled back into the assembly language. They have to, of course, it's not just Windows, but it's the specific Siemens process control technology. So, so arguably, or I'm for sure, I'm sure it's the case that that Symantec, you know, have experts on Windows and Mac, but probably not on Siemens process control, um, con, you know, uh, hardware. So they had to reverse engineer that, figure out what it was doing. So now they know, for example, that it it targets something called frequency converter drives, which are power supplies, did crystal control, digital controlled power supplies whose frequencies can be set and the frequency of the power supply drives process control motors. Um, it intercepts commands to vary the frequency, the, the, the speed of these motors wildly, but only intermittently. And um, only if this thing, now that we see how the code works, only if it was in a plant's network where it found at least 33 frequency converter drives made specifically by manufacturers Ferraro Paya in Tehran or Vacon in Finland would it come to life. Which, And so, again, it's incredibly narrowly targeted and... It only targets frequency drives from those two companies that are running at speeds between 807 hertz and 1210 hertz, which are the speeds that the uranium enrichment uh, centrifuges run at. So it's it looks like it's absolutely certain, I mean, as much as anyone could be, that somebody who really knew what they were doing. I mean, th this is not hackers, you know, random script kitty type people. I mean, this this raises the bar and lends further credibility to the people who were stating that, you know, this really looks like state-level actors. I mean, you know, government-type um, empowered people were, in fact, targeting Iran's nuclear enrichment facility. Wow. And it was also noted independently that a, I think they had, I remember a number like 4,300 um, centrifuges. And for an unspecified reason, about a third of those went offline. They were taken offline. And so, as I understand it, the way this, this worm infecting the process control of the enrichment process it would cause these centrifuges to appear to be malfunctioning. So it's it, so like, like they would bizarrely run at very wildly different speeds, like as low as two cycles, which would basically shut it down. It would just sort of stop. And then it would spin up to a much higher speed than it's supposed to go. And so somebody looking at this would think, okay, this is broken and turn it off. And apparently... About a third of these 4,300 total 
centrifuges were taken offline during this period of time. So it looks like it was effective. Unfortunately, now, of course, it's all public knowledge and it's been unearthed. So I'm sure that they've they've cleaned this of, you know, cleaned this off their systems and are, are back to work. But that does look like, I mean, with, with something this specific, uh, I think it's it's clear to be able to say now that's what Stuxnet was about. Wow, was it was uh, it was targeting that specifically? That's pretty um, amazing. I mean, it's and and what great detective work too. Yeah, 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 and and a lot of work to 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 pull that kind of thing off. Um. Uh oh, I had uh, three little notes when I when I pulled today's mailbag. For to, to get caught up on all the submissions that people have had, it wasn't until afterwards that I realized, wow, you know, I didn't see any feedback about the DNS benchmark. And then I looked again and I realized that something had interrupted the hundreds of pieces of email that I was downloading and stopped like a week ago just before last week's podcast. It didn't stopped in terms of the dates of the email submissions. And so I grabbed a bunch more. Um, like just half an hour ago, and there was another couple hundred, and there were lots of people who were talking about DNS stuff. Um, but I had already found three little pieces of of feedback, so I just wanted to share them as as a rata to basically encourage people to take a look at the free, completely free uh, benchmark that we discussed last week. If you hadn't, um, one guy wrote uh, D, his the subject was DNS benchmark hyphen UK, and he said in a word. Marvelous. I'm going to inform everyone I know about this. Configured my home router and all computers to use the same primary and secondary resolvers after running several custom benchmarks. Amazing difference. Without this tool, I thought I had a marvelous broadband connection. It has been an eye-opening experience and page refreshes and, and loads are visually better without any need for precise measurement. It made such a difference. Thank you, Steve. Someone wow. else wrote 163K worth of digital voodoo magic. Woo-hoo. Loving DNS benchmark enabled me to optimize my network further, found a lot faster DNS servers than OpenDNS. And finally, this third guy said, subject, his subject was DNS benchmark success. And he said, hi, Steve. I often listen to security now and always enjoy it when I do. Today, I watched the live podcast and heard DNS benchmark mentioned. So I gave it a whirl on my Linux machine at home. Home is Dublin, Ireland. The tool found 40 servers faster than my current default, which was 8.8.8.8, so that he was using Google's DNS. But, of course, Google in the States probably, right? Uh, yeah, although I would expect Google to have be a big spreading. Irish facility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, he said, so 40 servers faster than that, and the fastest was surprisingly my ISPs. Hmm. I, say, I say surprisingly because I moved away from using their DNS server last year because it was taking one to two seconds to resolve many IP addresses. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they have fixed their problems. Thanks for an interesting and useful tool. I work in the electronics engineering, in an electronic engineering company Pretty much everyone in the department I work for has configured their machines to use some other public DNS server, not the company one. It'll be interesting to see who has chosen well. Cheers. Very and cool. then I wanted to make a note about a, an 
a beta of Google Chrome, which caught my eye, just also in errata. Um, this is still beta, so it's not in the normal uh, production Chrome stream. But Chrome is adding, that uh, is Google's Chrome browser, now in the beta stream, has their own PDF document display, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, in their posting, they said, with every Google Chrome release, we hope to bring new features and improvements that will make your life on the web speedier, simpler, and more secure. Today, we're excited to introduce the integrated PDF viewer to the beta channel. PDF is a popular file format that's used for delivering documents on the web, such as the IRS W-4 tax form. That's sort of an odd example, but that's what... <laughs> well, that's, that's something but, probably people use more than anything else. Yeah. To open a PDF document... You typically need to install additional software or a browser plugin in order to view it in a web browser. With the integrated Chrome PDF viewer now available in Chrome's beta, you can open a PDF document in Chrome without installing additional That's software. Awesome. That's awesome. Yes. You, could, PDF, you know, Google does that in Gmail. They have a viewer built into Gmail. I'm sure it's the same code. Yes. Yeah. The, the PDF document will load as quickly and seamlessly as a normal web page in the browser. Just like we do with web pages viewed in Chrome, we've built in an additional layer of security called the sandbox yes, yes, yes. around the Chrome PDF viewer to help protect you from malware and security attacks that are targeted at PDF files. For now, the Chrome PDF viewer is available only in the beta channel, but we look forward to adding more polish and features as well as making it widely available in the stable channel soon. So really great. I I just think that's that's a that's that's definitely a hats off. Yeah. Um I you know and I know that you're now using Chrome as your all the main time. production yeah. browser on on Mac and Windows. I just love it. Yeah, I'm still I'm so hooked on the Firefox um ecosystem with, you know, so many add-ons that I'm liking like, you know, like hierarchical tabs down the left-hand side right. and and other goodies, but uh I also like, I have to say, I like what Google's doing with Chrome. Chrome has Flash built in, too. Yes. So Adobe, I don't know how much Adobe likes what Google's doing with Chrome. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're basically commandeering their plugins and building them into the browser yeah. and, and, you know, and then sandboxing them to make them safe. Smart. So, it's, so the, uh, of course, Flash is Adobe's code, but is the PDF reader Adobe's code or is it uh, Google's code? Does, did they say? Mm -hmm. Question. No, they didn't say. Um, that, that's the entire content of their, Interesting. their posting. I bet it's uh, their code since they have they have a – but who knows? Maybe they're licensing something. I don't know. Interesting. Well, we, we, Apple – we know that Apple does their own rendering of PDFs, right? Yeah, I because PDF they, is a standard. Yeah. Uh, an open yeah. standard that uh, Adobe uh, – I don't know if Adobe owns it or if, if they're giving it away. I'm not sure exactly what the deal is with that. Yeah. I did have an interesting uh, bit of feedback about Spinrite. Uh, this is a little longer than usual, but there's an interesting lesson here that I that occurred to me uh, after I read this. And this I just just came in on November eighth from Paul Oten. He said, "Hi, Steve. I'm an IT. Oh, and then the subject was Spinrite saves the linguini." <laughs> he said, "Hi, Steve. I'm an IT guy in business for myself. Listener since episode one of Security Now and Spinrite owner." As well as doing break fix jobs, and it's, I'm not, he didn't spell it like break as in fixing someone's breaks, but you know, I don't, I'm not sure what a break fix job is. I'm also a web designer. Six months ago, I took on a new website client. 
She's a wonderful Italian chef with a passion for cooking and food writing, but not very tech aware. And she wanted to share all this with the world via a new blog. I duly created a custom site for her, and it now has over 400 posts, all of which are well-written, entertaining to read, and extremely practical. She's using the blog as a promotional tool for her upcoming book. I hope he Try- gives the address of this. I want to go now. Okay, it's 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 not it's it's S I L V A N A D E S O I S S O N S dot com. Soisson. Silva Sylvan. Okay. So yeah, Silvana <laughs> de Soissons. Oh, there you go. You're right. Sylvana well, de Soissons. Very nice. Dot com. Right. So he's, she, he says, she's writing a blog as a promotional tool for her upcoming book. Trying to attract a publisher can be enormously difficult. When I visited her house, I discovered that she was attempting to write blog articles on a very old, entire laptop, which really was not up to the job. A deal was struck, and I provided her with a brand spanking new HP G72 laptop with a nice, big, bright screen and large 320 gig hard drive. As I was setting up the new laptop in my office, I noticed my copy of Spinrite sitting on the desk. I always keep it handy nearby. It occurred to me that I ought to run Spinrite on the laptop before delivery. Sadly, however, time did not permit this. And also, hey, what could possibly be wrong with a brand new drive, right? About two weeks after delivering and installing the laptop to a happy customer, I got a phone call from a very distressed cook who was now not able to boot the laptop mm. and who was staring at a message on the screen indicating imminent drive failure. Uh-oh. Mamma mia, he <laughs> says. <laughs> Were the words used over and over when I told her that potentially all data, i.e. chapters of her new book, recipes, unposted <sighs> blog articles, etc., might have been lost from the drive. I collected the laptop immediately removed the drive and plugged it into a Linux box to see if I could access any data and hopefully recover it. Oh, she's lucky she knows this guy, I gotta say. Yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. He says, a worrying Linux message told me that there was no way to mount the partition. Uh Uh-oh. So so I plugged the drive back into the laptop and reached for my Spinrite disk. My heart beat a little faster when the laptop refused to boot from the Spinrite disk. (laughs) I then loaded Spinrite onto a bootable flash drive and eventually got it running. Spinrite recognized the partition and got to work. Almost immediately, the Dynastat screen appeared. Not good. After two days, Spinrite had completed 0.983% of the drive. I, now, does, spin, what, does it work on the, um, uh, go from the inner to the outer? Is it? Is it going yeah, in order? It starts at the beginning. So it makes sense that it would hit system files early yes. on. Yes. So if, I bet you this happens a lot because uh, when, when it's not booting, people they go, oh, there's a system. Yeah. So I bet you that's when you, when you often get those long delays. Right. And it means that it often gets the work done that it needs to right away, you know, yeah. quicker rather than later. So he says, not good. I let Spinrite run. A few more days, all the while fending off frantic inquiries from the Italian cook by telling her that if anything could recover the data, Spinrite could. After seven days straight, 
I looked at progress. Oh, she must seven, have been crazed by this. Seven. Event. Oh, yeah. Seven oh. percent of the drive oh, yeah, yeah, had yeah. been processed. Well, and it means had, it'd only take three months to get it done. Yeah. <laughs> and there had been multiple unrecovered sectors. I decided to halt the process and try one last time to access the drive via my Linux box. Guess what? Despite the many unrecoverable sectors, I was able to recover all the documents now and most of the photos from the drive. Fantastico, he says. The drive is now being replaced by HP under warranty. My chef has her data back and I'll be getting a fancy Italian cake as a reward. I'd want more than that. I want a whole meal. Yeah, he says, thanks, <laughs> I've been looking Steve. at her pictures. <laughs> he says, thanks, Steve, for a great podcast. It never fails to impress me. Ciao. Paul Oten in Bath, UK. Oh, he's in the UK. Okay. And uh, oh, and then he also said, P.S. It's great to know when the aliens come, the U.S. government will be able to call Mr. Gibson to deploy <laughs> his big green laser as a last line of defense. <laughs> Now, okay, given the, the reason I shared this story is I'm suspicious. Um, the drive was working probably just perfectly. And it was serious. Something really bad happened to it. Um, I'm suspicious that this thing got dropped. Yeah. That, you know, it was, you know, that maybe there were a little too many things on the chef's uh, cutting board and the laptop got dropped mm. you know, on the floor or it fell over or something happened to it because, you know, I mean, th this, for it to have gone from just fine and brand new, I mean, yes, it's the case that a drive, you know, can be flaky from day one, but this just, it's too suspicious that, you know, that it took, seven days to get seven percent spin right was finding all these problems after two weeks i just think that um this thing got some abuse and you know spin right did everything it could luckily it was enough to get the you know to to get the the critical management portions of the, of the partition uh recovered so that he was able to get these files off which you know probably nothing else would have been able to do but still Eh, you see something like this and you think, okay, this, you know, this got dropped. And, you know, in that case, you're doing the best you can to get anything right. from a drop. It's in that it was very shape. fortunate. Yeah. This would be a good time to mention Carbonite. <laughs> <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> I mean, as long as we're talking here. Uh, now, I don't know if Carbonite uh, is U.S. only or not. But, boy... Uh, Silvana, if there, if it's U.S. only, you should find something like Carbonite in the U.K. Because backup, really, I mean, if you don't have a back, I, it just it stuns me when you hear somebody saying, oh, yeah, I'm writing a book. And the entire book, every copy of the book, oh. the whole thing is on this drive in my laptop. It's just like begging for the, the gods to go, boom, you, you have made a mistake. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, but 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 I hear it all the time from authors, and they're not technical people. So maybe uh, as somebody, who's, if you're listening to the show, you're obviously a technical person. You might want to turn them on to something like this: Carbonite.com. Carbonite is a fantastic choice for backup because it, it first of all it's automatic, so Silvana doesn't have to think, "Have I backed up?" Nothing. As long as she's online, it's backing up, and it's great with a laptop because it, it it'll use the Wi-Fi. It uses 128-bit SSL, so even on an open access spot, it's completely secure. 
She'll be backing up whenever she's online. And this is important. People sometimes say, well, isn't that going to slow my internet down or my computer down? No, no. They're very sophisticated, these guys at Carbonite. Uh, in fact, it took them a long time to do a Mac client. They have a very good Mac client now. But because they wanted to make sure they got it right, they wait until the machine is idle. They steal cycles from idle time. They steal cycles from down internet time. They are not – in no way does it impinge on your uh, use. It just backs off as soon as you use it. It backs off. In fact, there's even a button you could say, be not, be really nice. I, you know, I need all the performance I can get. And it, it'll even back off more than that. Um, it's automatic. That's important because you don't have to remember anything. And it's backing up not to a local drive that she could easily drop to <laughs> or could be lost. Uh, you know, I have a friend who's an author who uh, in the Oakland Hills fires of about 15 years ago uh, lost. She had, I'm sure she was backing up, but the whole house burned down and she lost her entire novel. Because the backups were in the house. You got to get it out of the house, off-site. And online is a great way to do it. We should, you know, 15 years ago, they didn't have this choice. Now, now she does. Believe me, I made sure she's using Carbonite. Uh, Carbonite.com, use the offer code security now. You could try this free for two weeks, see if it works for you. If you decide to buy, make sure you use the security now offer code because you'll get two months free. It's only $55 a month. That's 15 cents a day. It backs up as many, you know, there's no limit on the amount of data. It's all the data, all the personal data on your internal drive. Um, restoration is really easy, too. You don't have to, you know, it's a lot of times with backup, and I don't like this, you have to reinstall Windows or reinstall OS X, then install the application, then you can restore your data. Not like that at all. In fact, Carbonite, you can log into your account anywhere on any device, and there's your data. You can get it back. Uh, they even have a free iPhone and a BlackBerry app. So you really have access to your data all the time anywhere. It's, I, you know, I can't think of anything I would add. Maybe encryption? Oh, well, yes, of course, triple desk and blowfish. So if you want to encrypt the data so that nobody can see it when it's on the server, you can do that too. It is a great solution for anybody. You know, Carbonite and Spinrite kind of go together. But, you know, if you back the stuff up, you can always get it back. It just scares me when I hear there's only one copy. Yeah. Hard drives die. Carbonite.com, offer code security now. Back it up to get it back. Do it right with Carbonite. All right, Steve, I've got questions. I know you've got, got some answers. great uh, feedback from our listeners, so let's do it. Let's get to it. Starting with question number one from John H. in Excelsior, Minnesota. Higher. He wonders about mixed security. Steve, I'm wondering uh, if you can comment on the security implications. You see this warning a lot of mixing secure and insecure elements on a web page. Obviously, you know, fully secure would be best, but it's, you know, is it reasonable to send most or part of the content securely, but then send image content in the clear? Or is there no way to do this that doesn't compromise the session cookie? Your podcast is a great resource and has clarified numerous details of encryption techniques, best practices, and vulnerabilities. Thank you both for the years of great content so far. I can look forward to hearing more. Best regards, John. So we see this in the browser. Uh, it'll say... Just wanted to warn you, this page has a mix of insecure and secure content. What does that mean? Yeah, um, what that's telling us is that the page itself is the, 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 the base page was secure and some elements of the page, which the browser then fetched, were not. Um, I don't think you get that warning if the base page is not secure, but some of the things that are on the page are secure. Right. I don't think it works the other uh, other way. I think it's only saying that the 
that, that this page has, you know, has said that it wants its contents to be secure. But remember that the way the browser works is we get we we first load the base page that contains the HTML, which then has references to other assets like images and um, and other chunks of text, the uh, the cascading style sheet, you know, other things which the browser then separately goes out and fetches in order to assemble the whole page. So the idea is that that if those references refer to insecure things, then what, what John's asking is, you know, is that a big deal? Well, we know from, from this whole fire sheep escapade that, that what, what browsers are often doing, what, what websites are doing with the browsers is not keeping the session cookie secure. So the other way cookies operate is they're sent by domain. So say that the, we, we, we're getting a page from Amazon.com and as a site that is, is typical of having many other assets that are being loaded on the page, all those little pictures and, and chunks of menus and things that Amazon is loading. So the, the main page comes from Amazon.com and is secure. And with your logon information, after logging onto the server, there would be a cookie which is always being sent every time your browser notices that it is that is requesting something from the Amazon.com domain. So the problem with insecure pieces, which might also be coming from Amazon.com, is that when your browser asks for those, it will send the session cookie. It'll send whatever cookies it has from Amazon.com unless they were marked as secure. So cookies can be marked as this is a secure cookie. Only return this to the domain if it's over a secure connection. So if somebody were deliberately trying to, for example, minimize their use of SSL, then they could mix the security of the page if they were careful to make sure that the, that the credentials were only being exchanged over secure connection. And that would mean flagging those credentials as requiring security. That is, if flagging that, that cookie as only send this over a secure connection. The problem, however, is that then users of this site that would, had carefully and deliberately made itself sort of optimized so that the page was being secure, the credentials were being secure, but other assets were not, were deliberately being insecure. Every time the user brought up the page, uh, you know, such a page, they'd be getting a warning from the browser saying, oh, warning, this page has mixed security content. It's like, so, so that would be concerning the user that maybe this is a bad thing when in fact it was deliberate and it was being safe. So, you know, it would be nice there is no such protocol for this, but it would be nice if there were a way for a page to say to the browser, like with a, a, a response header, like with in the same way that the server sends a cookie to the browser, if there were a response header that said, 
hey, this is a deliberately mixed content mm -hmm. page. Mm -hmm. Don't bother anybody about that. Now, that's a safe thing to do because you could require that that, that, that header only being honored if it was be received over an SSL connection. So you wouldn't have to worry about it being injected or inserted by a man-in-the-middle attack over a non-secure page. You could say, only if this page comes to us via SSL securely, and if there's this extra flag in there saying, <clears throat> this is deliberately mixed content, don't bother the user about it, then I could see how that could be a nice addition to um, to uh, HTML or the HTTP protocol that would that would allow this kind of optimization, but wouldn't be sending off warning messages all the time. All right. Question <laughs> two. I, you never know. <laughs> I never know if there's more. Mark Cyrillic in Oshkosh. Wisconsin wonders about network masking on networks, whatever that is. Steve, I lived in an apartment complex. Or I lived in an apartment complex that gives us free internet while we lived there. So it's all past tense. I guess he's moved. They ran the switches and the connection, and all we had to do was plug our devices into a wall jack. I'm trying to share music, or in, in trying to share music with my roommate, however, we ran into a lot of problems because the admin had done something I'd never seen before. He had set up the DHCP server to give out IP info as such. IP address 10.1.3.24, subnet mask 255.55.55.54, DNS 10.1.3.1, gateway 10.1.3.1. So the gateway and the DNS were the same. What I found very interesting was that he had set up the subnet mask in such a way that your computer thought it was the only computer on the network. So 255, 255, 255, 254 allows for one IP address. And I was not even able to see any other machine on the network. I know you mentioned in 272 that Starbucks could enable WPA2 as a partial interim solution to solving the fire sheet problem. I'm wondering whether a solution like the one above could also help to solve that problem. That's interesting. I never uh, thought of that. So the subnet mask is set to allow but one IP address. Yeah, actually two. Um, because, yeah, you have to have two. Yeah. Um, what, what this is doing, it, it was an interesting configuration. So imagine an apartment complex where they're giving you free internet access. And as we know, a 10-dot network, so there, it's behind its own NAT router. There's a NAT router somewhere, probably a big one, um, you know, in the manager's office somewhere, which has is basically creating a 10-dot network. And we know that that's 16 million IPs because the 10 is the first eight bits of the IP. And then the other 24 can be anything. All the first eight of the 32-bit IP have to be 10. Then the next, the next 24 bits can be anything. So that's 16 million IPs. So... Of course, there aren't 60 million apartments nor 60 million connections. But so what they did was if they simply set up a big LAN with a, ten, a normal 10-dot network, there would be this, this problem that individual connections in different rooms and different apartments in this apartment complex were on the same 
dot network. So they could see each other, they could ping each other, and there was some some connectivity there. Now, probably they were using a switch rather than a hub. A managed and, switch, probably, right? I mean, so, you'd need some some intelligence here. Yeah, well, so they would so so the point is if you just did a packet sniff on your connection, you probably were not seeing everybody else's traffic. But you'd be seeing their ARP requests, which are broadcast, and a switch inherently broadcasts everything. So you would see other other machines on the network announcing themselves. And, you know, with a little bit of cleverness, you could you could get other IPs that other people were using. You could play ARP games. I mean, there are things you could do. So so what this particular installation did was interesting they instead of oh and i i i should i should mention that on a normal 10 dot network your subnet mask would be 255.0.0.0 meaning that the, the 255 portion of the subnet mask specifies the network the so-called network number which is 10 and those Three zeros, the zero dot zero dot zero, say that all the other bits are are variable within this ten dot network. Well, what this subnet mask does in this particular apartment complex is it's all ones except a zero at the very end, meaning that that essentially every connection in the apartment complex ease itself on its own network. It says only my IP, and t- technically there's one other IP because the last bit could be a zero or a one, but probably they were always zero. Um, but essentially, only my IP is on this network. So things like pinging other IPs would not work because they would, if you tried to, normally you if you ping another IP in your own LAN, then the, that packet is sent to the MAC address of that IP. And if you're, if you're pinging an IP not on your LAN, then it's sent to the MAC address of the gateway. Well, since what, what this apartment complex cleverly did was they set a, a subnet mask that said there are no other IPs on this network, so everything... If you send anything to anywhere, it's going to go to the gateway. So what that does is create some isolation, um, which I think is is really very clever. It's a it's a an interesting way of taking a, a a large private network, which a lot of untrusted people are sharing, and allowing them, you know, dividing this up, this private network up so that. It creates interperson privacy to a much greater degree than you would normally have. All that said, he then asks, what does this do with for like Fire Sheep and the Starbucks open network hotspot example? And unfortunately, not much. Um, because wireless is always like a hub. And that's one of the problems right, is that right, when, right. You, when, when you broadcast anything, everybody can receive it. So the, this solution 
that the apartment complex used works because it's it's essentially created a very there there there's a notion in lands known as the broadcast domain that is when you broadcast for example arp a, an arp request for hey who has this ip address it's sent out to the to the broadcast ip of the of the network which in this case would be um that's where the other ip is um it, it's like all ones in the in the ip so whereas the ip for example was 10.1.3.24 the broadcast would be 10.1.3.25 so even broad even arp broadcast would be constrained within these little individual networks not so in the case of using this approach on a wireless hotspot because you could still receive everything now it would be trickier to 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 impersonate a person because you'd have to be you have you, you're not all on the same network so you're on individual little network but it doesn't it does not provide you the same level of isolation that this does in in the apartment complex which actually is a very clever solution but it has to be hardwired to make it any sense it's got to be it's got to be switched and that's the right. deal is a switch right. that's what a switch does yes a switch a switch isolates um so that you're only providing traffic that is intended for any of the devices connected to that physical port and the switch itself learns which mac addresses are connected to that physical port but if you're if if you were to use this system in the apartment complex on a hub then you would see everybody else's traffic even though they're all right. on their own little individual itty bitty networks right but still very clever yeah that's that really is the key to the whole idea of uh managed switches is to isolate traffic right but most hotels and other areas don't want to spend the money cuz switches aren't cheap switches are much more expensive yeah. yes especially in a big in a you know, like in a large complex yeah you know it's a vlan it's a virtual lan uh, question three, a listener. Actually, before we get to that, Chessmest has a question about uh, the Chrome PDF viewer. But before and you know, actually, that, Leo, we should skip this one. I kind of talked I, about it. Yeah. Well, actually, the the note that I had was for this question. I forgot that I had this in our questions, <laughs> so, so you, I read the I read the note ahead of time. So we credit to Chessmest for bringing up there's a PDF viewer in Chrome. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we already did exactly. that one. So uh, next will be the uh, question from Chris in London, if you want to prepare about the uh, WPA key setup. Before we do that, though, I want to talk about my Ford. I love my Ford and the great Ford Sync. It's right out there. You can see it. See there? There's the Mustang. I love that 2010 Mustang. But, you know, one of the things I love most about it is actually featured in many Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. It's, it's the Sync technology uh, that lets you keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and yet, Connected to the outside world, I it works with all my phones, and I have I don't know what the limit is. I have I think four or five phones hooked up to the sink right now. You know, via Bluetooth, it'll play audio via Bluetooth. Uh, it, you can use it to make calls. You can use it to call for songs, to uh, get traffic conditions. I mean, all that stuff. It's very cool. I think Ford realized that their 
you know, when you design a car, you're you're designing something years ahead of time that is going to be years on the road. It would be foolish to try to keep up with technology with a car alone. So what Sync does is is use the updated technology in your phone. By the way, you can update the Sync. In fact, I, I've done that. You go to SyncMyRide.com. Every Ford owner has a, an account there. You plug it. It'll copy it to a USB key. The, the, the car has a USB port. <laughs> and you can update the firmware in the Sync. So it does keep up to date, actually. Uh, but, but for instance, uh, you know, uh, with the iPhone, uh, it wasn't reading text messages. Now with the new Android phones and with the Windows Phone 7, when a text message comes in, Sync reads me the text message, which is awesome. I can even send a canned response back, again, without my, taking my hands off the wheel or my eyes off the road. Uh, it also has turn-by-turn directions. Even if you don't buy the big GPS package, 911 Assist uses your phone for that. So if the airbags are deployed, I know that this is kind of a, something you don't want to talk about, but it's important, safety. If the airbags are deployed, um, it will call 911. It will give 911 your GPS coordinates. This is really important. Because then they know exactly where you are. Something uh, that normally E911 does not know exactly where you are. Uh, and play a recorded message. Then open the mic in the car and give you a chance to speak. You do have a chance to cancel that if the airbags are deployed and you don't want 911. It'll say, I'm going to call 911. You want me to? And you say, no, I got it. I'm, I'm in control here. Um, what else? Audible text messages, traffic alerts. That's kind of handy. Uh, music search. It works with iPods. Works with iPhones. Many USB uh, players. You put in the connect it to the USB port. It in, indexes it, and then you can say, like, well, I, I'm listening to audiobooks, so I can say, uh, I press the button. I say, audio sync. Stephen King play um, play uh, Dark Tower Three: The Wastelands Part Two, and it plays. You could say. Uh, climate, con- I, I can't remember the exact command, something like climate control, 74 degrees. And it sets it to 74 degrees. I just love it. It's like, you're, it's like you've got Kit, the amazing car. You want to find out more, go to SyncMyRidePodcasts.com. They've got a great website with lots of videos to give you an idea. But really the best thing to do, and I encourage everybody to do this, is go to a Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury dealer. They've got some great cars now. The 2011 Fiesta, the 2011 Mustang. If I hadn't just bought one last year, damn. I want that new 5.0 engine. It's so nice. The uh, the new Edge, the most technical car I've ever seen on the road, most, the most sophisticated car in the Ford lineup. Uh, the Flex. I think we're going to try to get a Flex for CES because it's got so much capacity. The trucks, the F-150. You can get the Ford Sync in any of them. Ford Sync. True hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist and more. Get it at your Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury dealer. Test drive it today or visit Sync My Ride podcast. Dot com. Do you have a car, Steve? I don't even know if you have a car. Yeah, I remember you uh, You took a picture of my license plate uh, after the... I uh... remember now. <laughs> I remember now. But we probably don't drive a whole lot. I mean... No, put very low mileage on it. Yeah. I just put around the area. Yeah. Which I... is the only reason my, my driving record has been clear for so long. <laughs> Are you kind I of a crazy know. driver? Uh, I, I think I've slowed down a lot in my. <laughs> you used my, to. I I could see you driving like a, a sports car at very well, high speed. I was an assigned risk. They had. I was one of those people who the insurance company did not want to take, but they were forced to. Really? Back in my youth, yeah. I, and I always had a manual transmission. I I, I Thunder loved to drive. Road, baby. Love to drive. Uh huh. 
Kristen, sometime we'll go for a ride. Kristen, I'll let you know. You should come up and drive the Mustang. You would love it. I got to come see the studio when you and get see that the studio. Put- yeah, sure, the new studio. Sure. Kristen, London, United Kingdom was shocked, shocked by the WPA key setup. Steve, I was amazed by your description of WPA's initial key exchange uh, on the uh, Current Security Now podcast. Diffie-Hellman key exchange has existed for the best part of 30 years and is a straightforward solution to this problem. Why don't they use Diffie-Hellman? Okay, so um, what Chris was concerned about was when I explained that the reason that everybody's sharing the same key still was a problem. I mean, it would encrypt connections, but if you had an attacker who was listening in, they would know everything that either party knew and be able to reconstruct a client's um, uh, individual session key themselves. Now, Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange, which we have covered in the past on this podcast, is a very clever means for achieving this without the vulnerability of anybody listening in. So the way Diffie-Hellman works, just as a brief reminder, is you take some number and raise it to a power and and then the other end takes the same number and raises it to a different power. They exchange this intermediate result, and then they raise that to another power. So the idea being that mathematically, a given number, say X, raised to the power of A, raised to the power of B, is mathematically the same as X raised to the power of B raised to the power of A. That is, that's the 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 order in which you you do these these power functions is commutative. It doesn't matter which way it's done. So that what that means is that each end is able to come up with a random number as their own power, raise the common number to that, exchange the intermediate result which is all done modulus some other number and that's the key it's within what's called a field Um, and then raise the exchanged intermediate again to their random number and that that's a way for them both to get the same result and somebody who is watching the conversation has no help here. They, there's nothing they can do. They can see these intermediate results go by, but that doesn't help them um, in order to, it, 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 it doesn't help them because there's no way from the, from the result of this number being raised to a power modulus another number that they're able to determine what's going on um, inside of either endpoint. Well, the reason this wasn't done is, as you can tell, it's complicated. It's also, these numbers have to be big. Um, The numbers that are being used, the random numbers that are chosen as the powers, have to be on the order of 100 digits long. Yikes. Yes. So you're raising something to a power that's 100 digits long, which is to say 
you're multiplying it by itself, you know, a huge number of times. And the modulus to be effective has to be a prime number that's about 300 digits long. The point is, this is public key technology. And the one thing that we know is public key crypto is slow. Mm. It's processor intensive. So the reason the WPA designers, the people who were replacing the, the very badly broken WEP encryption, could not use public key technology is it, they had to have this stuff still able to run on much lower powered hardware. On, on hardware, you know, in order to make WPA practical to sort of upgrade low end hardware, they had to use only symmetric crypto. They could not use asymmetric crypto. They could not use public key crypto, which is what Diffie Hellman Key Exchange essentially is. Um, and and that that's the cost of public key crypto is it uses it has to use really long keys in order to obtain its security. And that means that it's going to, you know, you only have to do it once. For example, once these endpoints exchanged their keys in a normal Diffie-Hellman exchange, now they've got something that they can then, they, they can use for all kinds of other purposes during communication, but you got to do it once. And the the designers of WPA protocol just said, Wow, you know, we'd love to use it. It was developed in 77. The patent was issued in 1980. So that's 30 years ago. So the patent expired 15, 17 years after that, so in 1997. So it was in the public domain, that is Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange was. But even so, they it's just too computationally burdensome to be able to retrofit older hardware and and have it work so they had to use something which which you know really the only the only problem of using it is that there is this potential for it being um sniffed on which uh you know is a is is a problem only in a in a scenario where you do know what the shared key is remember that we're sort of creating a synthetic uh, a synthetic situation here with WPA most people, like you know, and all of us who are using WPA at home, we know that we need to keep our key secret. Um, so we were we were suggesting that the key be made public only to get some crypto on the connections to defeat Fire Sheep as an interim measure until sites like Facebook are able to go 100% SSL. Well, speaking of Fire Sheep. <laughs> Nice, nice segue. Sean Paulson in Middletown, Delaware, talks about some of the challenges of going full SSL, which we have prescribed as a as a as a solution to the. Ultimately, that's that is yeah. the solution. Yeah, Steve, you made another great episode of discussion in the latest Security Now podcast Q and A. I enjoyed all the talk about the technology required to secure websites from fire sheep attacks, or basically uh, cross site uh, cookie stealing. I guess. Yep. I think you made a great point that SSL is not computationally expensive these days. Google made that point for us. However, as a web developer and having been part of a production deployment of a commercial website using 
a content distribution network, or CDN, I can offer to you that switching to SSL is not always as easy as just throwing a certificate on your servers. Site owners can be compounded with significant server and bandwidth costs. If a site were just a handful of web servers, it would be as easy as installing certs and going full SSL. However, some amount of additional bandwidth throughput will be utilized because browsers and intermediate caching proxies cannot cache secure content like it can with non-secure content. Browsers will temporarily cache in memory during a session. Of course, that's still allowed, but afterwards it has to be thrown away. Returning to the site under a new session requires re-downloading all the images, scripts, etc. Furthermore, when implementing a CDN, as Facebook has for pictures at sphotos.ak.fbcdn.net, Certificates will not come cheap. CDNs work like a giant distributed caching proxy server. By the way, our, our files are all distributed by CDN via CacheFly. Um, a user, actually, your, your, your audio is distributed, your videos to CacheFly, your audio is distributed by AOL, but I'm almost certain AOL is using something. Yeah. Probably its own CDN. A user hits a link hosted by a CDN. The DNS resolves to a CDN edge server which is geographically close to the user. That's the benefit of a CDN. Right. The Edge fetches the requested content from its source server at Facebook and caches it. The Edge server delivers the cached content back to the user. Edge servers will synchronize caches to gain greater geographic coverage, SSL caching at the Edge. Still possible because SSL is only between the user and the Edge server. The Edge requests the content from the source server in a separate session, hopefully also using SSL. Every Edge server in the CDN needs an SSL cert installed for your host name. And that could be hundreds, if not thousands of them, depending on the CDN provider. It's true. Everybody who's getting a video copy of Security Now ostensibly from uh, CashFly.net is actually getting it from a different server. There's servers right. all over the world. Um, if your organization requires the $1,000 per year VeriSign certs, that can quickly become cost prohibitive. One alternative is that CDNs may offer a shared secure hosting wildcard cert with a shared domain name that may be free or cheap to use. For example, facebook.somecdn.com. That's an example. That's not an actual URL. Right. My suspicion is Facebook needs to re-architect their CDN infrastructure to avoid these excessive costs. Hope this helps shed some light on the situation. Thanks again for the excellent podcast. That's a good point. Is he, is he right? Well, he's absolutely right, and the the point that he also made about even even shot short of CDNs, for example, cable modem. We know that cable modem providers often have their own caching proxies, a, a, a transparent proxy, such that when when you're making requests, for example, to for for Amazon.com, many of Amazon's own page components are the same no matter who you are, no matter what user you are. So if if I use my cable modem to access Amazon.com, my own browser will cache a bunch of these pieces, but the, the, the ISP's got a, its own cache in line, which is also caching, so that if some other customer of the ISP pulls up Amazon.com, the the this transparent caching proxy at the ISP says, oh, wait a minute. This user has asked for the same image that that user asked for, so it provides it out of its own cache. It, the, the ISP does that primarily because 
It saves its bandwidth costs. It's not having to pay for as much transit bandwidth um, as it otherwise would. And the advantage for the user is that image is being served by the local um, caching proxy rather than remotely. So the problem with all of that is if these the, 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 the caching proxy is only able to see into non-SSL connections, that ISP's caching proxy, it, it's completely blind to anything SSL. So if, if the page and all of the page's objects are over SSL, it can't proxy them at all. It can't cache them at all. So, so all of the fetches out to the, from the browser to Amazon have to be direct and cannot be intermediately cached. And so this is sort of a variation on the on the full scale content delivery network, which is sort of it's very much the same concept, but it's done explicitly by the website provider like Facebook in this example, as opposed to sort of implicitly and even in a sort of a hidden fashion, um, helping the user's browsing experience um, and limiting the ISP's bandwidth. So it is the case that there are bandwidth costs and there is some performance hit for 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 pages that are providing all kinds of content because you're you're no longer able to cache them in an inter, in any intermediate location it's always got to go back to the origin server in order to provide the content so he does make a good point there is some there is some cost not to the ssl connection but to the fact that it, you it does defeat caching along the way unless you do something um, like as he was suggesting there are wild card um, certificates um, I got one about a year and a half ago from GoDaddy that I've mentioned before where it was you know star.grc.com and I I learned quickly that it wasn't it wasn't the same as star.star.grc.com which is actually what I needed you could only have one level of uncertainty in that wild card certificate so it didn't end up serving my purpose but that is one way of defraying some of this cost but yes there is some going to be there's going to be some some performance hit not from the public key aspect of ssl but just from the fact that more bandwidth will end up being used and for somebody like Facebook, which serves a huge amount of data, especially pictures, that that that's not insignificant, frankly. Yeah, it'll be interesting when. I mean, I'll be interested to see when they do this, how they do it, and I'll probably you know take apart a Facebook page to see you know how they solve the problem. I imagine they'll be providing somehow SSL CDN content, mm-hmm. which I imagine. I mean, I'll bet they're on. They're working on it right now. I guess they wouldn't have to SSL everything. You could have one of those mixed pages, right? Yeah, and and that's again, that's why I really wish there was a means for a a server to say, you know, allow these non-SSL pieces because there's no there's no security downside to, you know, them providing images and other chunks of their, you know, like large chunks of their site that are going to be the same for everyone over a content provider that's not SSL. But again, doing so would bring up that warning saying, oh no, some of this is not secure, even though it's just not a problem. You know, it's by design. 
couple more questions. Question six from William McMahon in Toronto, Ontario, mostly. Uh, has a question about router DNS configuration. I'm actually, maybe the mostly goes with the question. I don't know. We'll find out. Steve, I've been using your DNS benchmark tool. Great job, by the way, he says. I'm a little curious about some of the settings. I've never used a custom DNS server before and always just used my home router as my DNS, which uses my ISP's DNS servers in turn. My network at home is running DHCP, so as you know, it pushes the DNS servers as well, and in my case, the router gateway. I was wondering if there's a way for my router to push the public DNS server's IP instead of pushing the router's gateway address to the machines in my home. I could statically configure my DNS IPs on my router, but it still pushes the router's gateway address as the DNS IPs. The only other way around this would be for me to go to each computer and manually uh, type in the custom DNS servers I want to use, but that's a pain. Lastly, a comment. Now that you're done with DNS Benchmark, you should have all the time in the world to work on CryptoLink, right? Any updates? I'm dying to hear more, William. Well, actually, that mostly was that he had a SpinRight testimonial at the beginning. Ah. And, and, and I thought, okay, we've talked about SpinRight enough. <laughs> well, here's a happy so, customer. So I cut it out, and I forgot to remove the mostly. So um, now we know. So uh, that's what that was. Um, okay, so most routers, I can't say all routers, because it would be up to the router, router manufacturer, but to sort of to clarify what he's saying, he's saying that he's used the benchmark and he's found better DNS servers than the ones his ISP is providing. And that's often the case. So he, he knows he could go and manually configure those DNS servers in all of the computers in his network. But what if he changes his mind? If he wants, he wants you know, he uses the benchmark tool you know, in six months and he finds different ones. What he'd like to do is have his router provide those to his computer rather than have his router always provide its own address as the IP which his computers use for their DNS. And I I concur. It really is a better thing to do. It's not clear to me that there's a tremendous benefit for a, for like routing your DNS through the router. And in fact, as we're going to learn next week, there are reasons not to because it turns out that some routers crash when being asked to do just regular DNS. So, really? Yes. Um, I have seen in the routers I've looked at, there is typically a setting that allows you to turn off sort of this router proxying. It's it's just, it's not caching. It's not very, it's not powerful enough to really add any value to DNS. All it's doing for some reason is giving you its IP as DNS. I believe that, that our own endpoint um, client machines do a better job with having two DNS servers than the router providing it only with one, meaning its own IP. So, William and other listeners, I think if you look at your settings, you'll often see a setting that says, you know, use router for DNS. That you can turn off, and then you can still manually configure which DNS servers you want it to offer to all the machines in your network. And that's, I think, the optimal configuration once you've got the, the DNS, um, I, the IPs of the DNS servers that you want to use, which, of course, 
uh, the GR GRC's benchmark provides. Oh, and as for CryptoLink, um, I've got some more stuff I need to do before I start CryptoLink, which is just as well because I do I am seriously perturbed about the FBI and what Congress may be doing relative to um, requiring wiretapping technology in anything like this. I'm hoping that a, that a standalone product, which just provides endpoint encryption, would not be subject to this. You know, whereas something like GoToMyPC or Skype, which is involved as a third party, I could see where they may have a requirement to provide that kind of wiretapping. But I'm hoping that something that isn't a third-party involvement, and CryptoLink won't be, it'll just be point-to-point, -point. I'm hoping that would not fall under this kind of, of legislation. It's hard for me to imagine that it would. So I've got my fingers crossed, but I do have other things to work on in the meantime. I'll be getting to it as soon as I can. I'm just looking at uh, the, the configuration of uh, our D-Link uh, router here. Uh-huh. And I think this is what maybe where I would do this. It says at the bottom, DNS and advanced settings. Use these DNS servers, and you can see I've put in the IPs for open DNS. I presume that that means don't use me, but I don't know. I'll have to. Would it be in the well, DHCP section? Yeah. Now, now look at your own computer and see what your what the ah. computer using the router. Does it have the gateway IP, or does it actually have the open DNS I IPs? See. I see what you're saying. All right. Well, I'm not sure I want to waste everybody's yeah. time doing that, but uh, I will I will check and report back. And that's what our listeners can do. Yeah. That's how you would know. All right. Moving right along. Question number seven. Uh, oops. Comes from Pete. <laughs> Listening in Rochester, New York. He wonders about GRC's transcripts. Steve doesn't know what happened there. He's not watching. So don't tell him. I have a, I have a uh, limp microphone. Steve, I enjoy reading the PDF of the show. Do you use a software program to transcribe from the audio recording? And if so, could you please give us the name? Great show. Learn a lot about SSL from the Fire Sheep discussion. What is the name of that software you use to transcribe, Steve? <laughs> it's fantastic Isn't software, it good? Leo. Yes. It never makes a mistake. Never. It, you know, we can fumble around and humble and mumble and and one way or another, the, even our misspellings get fixed Isn't for us. Amazing. Yes, uh, the software's name is Elaine. <laughs> on on site media is is the name of the company that Elaine is, and uh, she's been doing all the pod, the pod, transaction or all of our um, transcriptions, all of our transcriptions from yeah. day one. Yeah, and so Pete, unfortunately, uh, if it were software. Boy, it'd be really popular be good. because it'd be uh, fantastic, but it wouldn't work nearly as well as Elaine does. Well, we've all seen the, the lousy job Google does on YouTube uh, transcription. We've all seen, um, even if you watch TV, you can always oh tell God. when uh, the closed captioning is done by a human versus a machine. The humans don't do a great job, but the machines, really, it's ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, no, you need a human to do this right. And, uh, you know, Elaine charges. Steve pays it, by the way. Credit to Steve because he really wanted to have... Uh, written transcriptions of the show, and uh, and so he pays Elaine out of his own pocket to do that. So thank you, Steve. Glad to. Finally, our last question. Dave Solon in Lancaster, PA, will share his podcast survey results. 
Steve, huge fan of your podcast for years, along with This Week in Tech. I was wondering if you might help me out with a grad class research project. I'm a K-12 through instructional technology specialist in Lancaster, PA, also an avid podcaster. His show is 24Tech, all spelled out, dot com. I'm a huge advocate for teachers and students to start their own podcasts, as am I. We, I set up a podcast studio for our, uh, my kids' high school. Um, and I'd like to help guide them to create podcasts in formats that most folks like to listen to or watch. I've developed a short survey to try to find some things out to help me in my quest for podcasting proliferation. If you'd like us to share the uh, survey URL for the good of the education and podcasting community. The page is davesolon.wikispaces.com. Dot com. He says, I'll share all my data and paper after it's complete. Thanks for your consideration. And if Leo uh, could share this study, I'd be forever indebted to you both. So it's, it's David, D-A-V-I-D-S-O-L-O-N dot wikispaces dot com. And what I found interesting about this, I mean, first of all, the survey is neat. I'd love our listeners to give him uh, their feedback. He He promised to email it to me so that I could share... The, the results back with our listeners, so we'll close that loop. But he all he used some Google spreadsheet. Yeah, we've technology. used this. We use this too for our surveys. It's really interesting. Great. I hadn't seen that before, yeah. but I thought that was really neat that you're able to use a, a just a somehow like a simply format a spreadsheet and collect the data and uh, and see what everyone had done. Yeah, so, so it looks like a real survey, but then the results end up in a Google spreadsheet uh, at Google Docs. We're actually using you can I'll tell you what. This is his survey and once again uh, the, there's a short link for this which is bit.ly/podcastresearch. Mm. It'll take you right there. bit.ly/podcastresearch. Uh, but if you want to take our survey using exactly the same technology, we're ah. compiling best of shows for the holidays the week after uh, Christmas. Uh, your show we've already got solved. That's the uh, yep. the portable dog killer. But for Twit and Twig and some of the other shows, if you'd like to participate, uh, tell us your best, your favorite episode. That's twit.tv slash best of. T-W-I-T dot TV slash best of. And it's exactly the same uh, technology. We embedded it in an iframe on our Twit site. Uh, but this is also gives us a Google spreadsheet. It's powered by Google Docs. Very cool. And K-Shep uh, set that up for us. So you could choose the four shows that we're doing best ofs are Twit, MacBreak Weekly, This Week in Google, Windows Weekly, and Tech News Today. Uh, if you know the episode number, the air date, that'd be great. What time it occurred, that'd be great. If not, just you know, put what you know, and uh, we, really, we will thank you. And uh, you'll hear the best of Twit and the week after Christmas. Most of the shows are going to go dark for that time, including this one. But this one will, will not miss a show. We've never missed a show. We'll just provide you with a, a repeat of one of our favorite Christmas classics. And you know what we could do, Steve? We could record a uh, kind of an intro and some information. In fact, even if you want to do this tech news and errata and stuff as an intro to it, we could update that part. Okay, cool. Yep, yep. The portable dog killer. It's the best. <laughs> Steve, you're the best. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. His Twitter handle, at sggrc. Uh, you can follow him there. At GRC, of course, is the home of Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. If you have a hard drive, you really ought to have Spinrite. But lots of free stuff there, including the new DNS benchmark and many other useful utilities. GRC.com. That's also where you'll find the 16-kilobit versions of the show for the bandwidth impaired, Elaine's great transcriptions, the show notes. And if you want to ask a question, that's where you'll find the feedback form, grc.com slash feedback. 
Do you know what we're going to do next week? Is it a surprise? Well, I do know what we're going to do because on the heels of the DNS benchmark, the thing that actually was the was the the stimulus for that was the um, the revelation of how many DNS servers were vulnerable to spoofing that Dan Kaminsky provided, oh and I created a complete, rather amazing, frankly, uh, piece of technology at GRC, which is a a system which allows people to check the spoofability of their own DNS servers. So GRC's DNS spoofability testing system is our te- is our topic for next week, and lots of technology in that. So it's going to be a propeller spinner. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Steve, you're the best. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.